Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, welcome to Six Feet Apart. I'm Alex Wagner. There are few things we know for certain in this crisis, but one thing we know beyond the shadow of a doubt, it is a really good time to be selling toilet paper and masks and gloves and hand sanitizer. But what about literally everything else that you can buy? Up until COVID-19 became a global pandemic, Americans especially were known as lusty consumers, buying so much so often that the American consumer became the very heart of the national economy. 70% of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. And that ain't all hand sanitizer, folks. So what's happened to all that shopping as people have stayed home and gotten increasingly wary about spending money? What's happened to the people making all that stuff that we used to buy so much of? Is it all just sitting in warehouses ready to go on sale? What do you do with thousands and thousands of handbags and wiffle balls and eyeshadow and crochet needles anyway? And now that stores are beginning to open up to the public, what's going on with the people selling the stuff that we used to buy so much of? Are they busy? Are they scared? That's what we're going to talk about today. Shopping. First, we're going to talk to Claire Vivier, the designer and owner of Claire V, a boutique fashion brand known for its bags and accessories. And then we'll speak to Cassie, a store clerk at the craft supply store Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby is a national chain that you may remember from the very high-profile 2012 lawsuit Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, a suit that made its way all the way to the Supreme Court when the company sued the Obama administration for its mandated contraception coverage under the Affordable Care Act. But before we get to all that, here's Claire Vivier. Claire, can you give us a sense of your business pre-pandemic? Yes, we are um, an accessories and clothing brand based in Los Angeles. Um, we are made in Los Angeles. About 90% of our production is produced here in Los Angeles. Um, we have eight of our own stores. It's five stores in California and two stores in New York City and one in Chicago. We are sold in about 150 stores around the world. And um, I've had the company for 11 years. I started it right here out of my house where I am now again working <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the cycle of retail um in terms of the volume of sales like how many bags for example were being sold every month we were selling about a hundred thousand pieces a year and that includes apparel and small items as well yeah tell me a little bit about how you first how and when you first realized that COVID-19 was going to affect your business? Gosh, it was interesting because I had a trip planned for a long time with an organization that I do a lot of work with called Every Mother Counts. So this this most recent trip was to India to see their programs um, with um, a uh, an organization called Nazdik in, in India, which helps paralegals. 
advocate for women's rights. Simultaneously, I had two people from my um, company in Milan at the leather show that happens twice a year in Milan called Linea Pele. And then we had um, market right after that in Paris. So I had my design director at Linea Pele and then in Paris. And I started to hear, I was in India at the time, and I started to hear from my com- my president of my company that um, there was a little bit of apprehension from others in the company about these two employees who had just been in Milan and whether or not they were, they were going to be contagious. What was your communication with your employees who were in Europe? Did they, were they worried when they were there? Was anybody talking about it? I mean, one of them was in Italy, so I would assume there was some amount of awareness on the ground. Yeah, they were, they were both in Italy together, and then one of them went on to Paris, and the one that stayed, Greta, who stayed in Paris, um, was really hearing way more about it because it, it had just really, really started to erupt in Milan, and I think they got out of there right at the right time. Um, I, I started to hear about it because there, there were a few employees back at the home office, back, back at our headquarters, that were a little nervous to have these two employees come back in from Milan in Paris. Mm-hmm. And I was in India, so I felt very um, far away and very um, worried to be so far and not there as a leader of my company, you know, making people feel more at ease and just dealing with a situation that could be arising. So it, yeah. uh, my president, Molly, was very um, reassuring that, no, I did not need to come home early. And we kept in touch every single day. And um, I ended up staying and did the Jaipur um, part of my trip and arrived home um, March 6th. So you are overseas, which is a fairly dramatic sort of way to <laughs> to watch this thing unfold, right, especially from India. And you're thinking about this um, in terms of the human toll, right? Like, how am I going to keep my employees safe? What do they need from me as a leader? Did you start at, at what point did you start to think about it in terms of production and how it might affect the thing that you sell? Well, it was pretty early on in terms of materials because we know that all most of our materials are coming from Italy. Most most leather that we order comes from Italy. Um, so, I think we didn't realize that our factories were going to close until really the week after that, the week of the sixteenth. Our local factories. We started to get kind of um, the inkling that things were going to be shutting down and um, we started to that that week of the ninth every day was like something more was happening that we were thinking um this is this is going to happen we're going to have to close our stores we're going to have to close our headquarters um on later that week so probably like the the 13th we closed one of our stores um because we we thought that the lockdown was going to happen the next week on the 16th. And we had one of our employees at our Newport Beach store um, had a fever and we just couldn't risk anything. So we closed that store early. We closed that the um, March 13th just for the safety of the employees. Um, And then we closed all of our stores on March 16th. The thing that was really, really difficult for me was... um, Two weeks later, we we furloughed all of our retail employees. And that was when it really hit me that um, I 
was perhaps part of causing pain to these people that I love and that came to work for a company that I built myself and that they had, you know, given themselves to help me build this company. And I, that was extremely painful to me. And that's when it really hit home. And I couldn't, I couldn't be optimistic about it anymore. We're talking about this sort of looking at the rear view. I, I got, I want to kind of catch up to the present and get a, a sense of where things stand right now. You know, commerce continues, a lot of it's online. How have you guys been managing sales if if there are any? Can you tell me a little bit about what the market is like and, and how you've been navigating these waters? We still had a ton of um, direct sales to go out of our warehouse. Um, and I could not ask any employees to go in. So I went in with my husband and the two of us um, had to learn everything from printing labels to how we ship bags to pick picking and packing. So it was a real crash course on how um, how the operations of our warehouse work. The decision to go back in there and actually be in the warehouse with your mask and your husband seems like a fairly hardcore, like, we're going to do this by any means necessary. Yes, that's exactly what it was. And that's that's what we did. I mean, there was no other choice for me. Um, I knew that we had to keep some source of revenue in the company, otherwise we would be completely gutted. So our website was still running. Everyone could still run that from a distance. Um, but somebody needed to ship the bags, the actual orders. We had hundreds and hundreds of orders that had to go out. So um, th- things got shipped a little bit later than the usual, but we um, we eventually got everything out. Um, we also put the website on sale because we were very nervous about the over-inventoried position. At the same time, we had wholesale orders canceling on us, and we had um, eight stores that had just closed. So we had a lot of um, revenue to make up. And so we kind of panicked, which I think a lot of um, brands did. And I don't know if it was panic or if it was just something really smart to do, but we put um, the entire site on sale 25% off, which is something we never do. Tell me how business is. I mean, I think this is the big question when you think about retail, right? Like there's a certain consumer that's going to be excited about the sale, a wealthier consumer, a more middle-class consumer, what have you. And then there's a whole group of Americans who are out of jobs, who are seriously worried about their finances. How do you calibrate, you know, where your business is, where your price points are set, like who you're designing for in a moment of uncertainty like this? One of the things I really love about our company is that, and I think it's part of our ethos, is that we are a joyful company. We're very, I think that we produce a very mm. happy product without it being, without yeah. it being silly in any way. I think it's, it's just something that brings joy to people. And I think it brings joy to maybe where largely women who are, is our client base. So I think it's, There's something about fashion that can be a purchase that brings joy to people. And I think this is a time when people are looking for something that kind of will uplift their spirits a little bit. So I think we might be riding on that a little bit, that we are, I don't know, bringing comfort to people in a certain way and maybe, maybe letting them take their mind off what is happening in the world right now for a small moment in time. 
have you seen demand? I mean, how is demand, generally speaking? You had to close your stores. Are they all still closed? This last weekend, our California stores were able to open now. So we decided to hustle. Now, this puts, I think, every store in a weird position because, number one, you have to figure out if this is a good plan for you or and you've probably emptied out your stores at this time because you, number one, didn't want looting and number two, didn't... Um, you needed that inventory for e-commerce. So we had, our stores were pretty empty. We had like 48 hours to put inventory back in our stores and find um, employees to to work. So how are sales? Well, I'm happy that we opened. I, they were not um, as great as they would have been like compared to last year, but we did some brisk sales for, for Mother's Day. I'm happy we did. It's wonderful to hear that you have had such a positive experience in this sort of chancy reopening period. I guess I wonder, though, as you look ahead, where we have a very uncertain economic forecast, the virus is by no means under control in a, in a national way that would, I think, give a lot of people more confidence in terms of going out, spending money, or just going out, period. How do you, I mean, how do you look at the year 2020 from where you, where, where we sit right now? Yeah, let's, I mean, let's be clear. I'm not, um, I'm not extremely um, delusional or anything. I know that the second shoe could drop at any moment, but we're just taking things day by day. And um, right now it means that our stores can be open for curbside pickup. And right now that feels like a positive thing, but our, our overall revenue is, is projected to be down by 50%. We've, um, we've, We've redone our budget this year, like already three different times since the pandemic has struck, and we keep um, lowering our numbers. Uh, but it, it, at the same time, our, our website is performing really well, and we'll see. We'll see what our stores do. Claire, I want to ask you sort of a philosophical question in this moment. Do you think that <laughs> American consumption will be changed by... COVID-19? I hope it's changed by COVID-19. I hope that um, we can think more about our purchases and buy things that are of of quality over quantity. Um, I believe that we will fall into the in the former category. And um, I think that we are still something special and of quality that people will purchase. So I think Think we're going to be okay, but um, but of course, mass consumerism is a huge problem for the for our country and for the environment. And I I hope that that is something that comes out of this pandemic. That would be something positive for sure. Um, but the thing that I the thing that keeps me going really overall is that. We are not only producing quality goods that bring people joy, but we're also producing jobs and creating community. And that's been the most um, satisfying element of building this company is, is, and that was also the mo- why it was the most painful to lay people off because um, I want my company to survive not because we're consumer goods getting out in the world. I do love our product. I do, I'm proud of it. But I think a creative company that employs a lot of people here locally in Los Angeles 
and, and in the cities where our stores are is something to be really proud of. And I think people need jobs and, um, and the fact that I've been able to provide hundreds of them to people is, is really the most, the most satisfying element of all of this. So I'm, I, I know what you're getting at with, with asking a question about consumerism, but I think, I think as humans, we, we like to buy things that make us feel good. And I think Claire V is that product that makes people feel good. And, and most of all, I'm just happy to have created this community, both of employees and of, of Claire V fans. Well, we hope that they are all back fully employed sooner than later and uh, that the procurement of joy <laughs> continues in whatever form it may take. Thanks for your time, Thank Claire. Thank you, Alex. Before we hear from Cassie, here's a quick word from our sponsors. Six Feet Apart is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? You know, like a massive pandemic, maybe? BetterHelp will help you assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment, making it super convenient, and you can begin communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room or even leave your house. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if you need. And the service is available for clients worldwide and more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Plus, financial aid is also available. There's a broad range of expertise available, which might not be available locally in many areas. And licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma are all there on the platform. Everything you share is confidential, and you can check out testimonials posted daily on their site. As a listener, you can get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com apart. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health at betterhelp.com slash apart. Six Feet Apart is brought to you by Fairshake. Corporate greed hasn't taken a break during shelter in place, and neither should consumer rights. It may not feel like it, but when cable companies tack on hidden fees, gyms stop you from canceling, or wireless companies make you pay for your free phone, you have rights. That's where Fairshake comes in. Through expert knowledge of the consumer arbitration system, Fairshake automates the paper pushing, so it takes 10 minutes to start a claim online against your phone or internet company, your bank, your gym, and more. An expert coaches you through the process of getting your voice heard and your complaint resolved. And successful Fairshake customers recover $568 on average. Go to fairshake.com slash crooked to see the 50 plus brands Fairshake helps with and start your claim in about 10 minutes. Or you can read about them in the New York Times. Take on the big guys and have your voice heard at fairshake.com slash. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Forget. Now, here's Cassie, a store clerk at Hobby Lobby. 
Cassie, let's just start with where are you in this in these United States? I am in St. Joseph, Missouri. It's about an hour outside of Kansas City. Okay. And tell me a little bit about your work. Well, I work for Hobby Lobby. It was my high school job and I went to college and grad school and then my grandma got sick and I moved back to help take care of her and it was just easy to fall back into something that I already knew and was there and was convenient. Um, and there's not a lot of opportunity here per se. So um, I just, I, it's it's retail. It is what it is. Um, I work, I do home decor and make nice little decorations for people's houses and try to sell them. Right. So for people who aren't familiar with Hobby Lobby, it's a line of craft stores, right? Yes. Yeah. Crafts. Although, I mean, it's really kind of from even the time when I worked there in high school to the time I've gotten now, it's transitioned a lot away from crafts and arts to a lot more home decor and seasonal things. That's kind of the big because I think it has the the bigger markup on the the cheaper (laughs) Chinese made things that come over than it does to sell like nicer art supplies and things like that. So some people take their holidays very seriously, but I don't believe craft stores were on the list of essential businesses, were they? They were not, but they um they tried very hard to kind of reclassify themselves as essential. There were a lot of memos that were coming in during early days of where shutdowns were starting to happen. And they were they were literally memos that were titled like how to speak to authorities. So if the health department right. showed up, here was like what you should look for in each individual shutdown order to claim that you are essential. Like we sell fabric and elastic, so people are making their own masks or we sell different, I mean, craft stuff or art stuff for homeschooling and activities. I mean, it was, they were really stretching on the definitions, but they, they tried very hard in lots of different ways to, to claim that crafting is an essential business. What was the conversation like with your employers? What were they telling you guys as the virus started making national news and businesses across the country started closing, schools closing, cities going on lockdown? What was the atmosphere like at Hobby Lobby? I would say absolutely nothing unless you asked specifically. There were a few things they did with putting... um, glorified shower curtains down in front of the cash registers they're kind of hanging off of rods from the ceiling and just yeah (laughs) with like vinyl that we sell by the yard so that we didn't have to order anything in special and then when the stay-at-home order started coming through different places like I said they were more concerned with trying to stay open than they were with our health, I would say. Um, so they would the most of the memos and most of the stuff coming from corporate was all about how to get around closing and not so much about changing how we were operating. All of the other stores in our district closed and we were one of the last ones that was still open. And then when the city shut down, they t- told us that we would have to use our personal time or our vacation time and then we would basically just be unpaid. Then they changed that and they said they were going to do like two weeks of emergency pay, which was going to be figured at 75% of like the average hours that you worked Mm -hmm. at your regular pay. And then they changed it again and we got a call saying, well, we're closed, but you can come in if you'd like on a voluntary basis to help clean the store or just do some, you know, displays or things, you know, working away from anybody and without customers there. 
Talk to me a little bit about uh, what kind of protections beyond the vinyl shower curtains. Are you guys being offered extra hand sanitizers, gloves, masks? I mean, one would think that in a craft store, masks would be something that could be procured. Is that the case at Hobby Lobby? Yeah, they have, I mean, a limited supply of surgical masks that we had had from before that were just for whenever they would clean the bathrooms or clean other, you know, messes up. Um, So there's people that are wearing those, but there's only like two boxes and the warehouse is out now, obviously, because you can't get things like that. So they're saying, you know, that you have to wear the same mask. So people are just saving their mask in their lockers. We do have a lot of homemade masks from our own fabric and elastic and things. You guys reopened when and how was that process? May 4th. Um, so it was two weeks ago. And it was chaotic at best. Initially, they only called, I think, seven to nine employees back out of everyone there. So for the first few days, we were all working like open to close shifts. Um, and it was insanity. Uh, we did a quarter of a million dollars our first week reopened. It was like Black Friday. Yeah, it was Black Friday sales numbers every single day. Um, like from the time we opened till the time we closed, we were pretty much at capacity, even though we weren't actually counting people like we were supposed to. There was a 10% limit in the reopening guidelines for the city. But our district manager said that he didn't think it would be necessary for us to count people at first because we'd probably only be busy on maybe Friday or Saturday. But then on Friday, when we did start counting people, we hit our 10% number within the first like hour, hour and a half and stayed at it for the whole day. The 10% number is what? 10% of what a normal store capacity? The building capacity. Yeah. Whatever the fire code number is, which for our store is like almost 1500. So the 10% number is like 150 minus whoever the employees. And then that's how many customers you can allow in. And you guys weren't keeping to that number. Is that what you think? Not No, we weren't counting at all for the first three or four days. We only have four registers running at any given time, and the lines are going like all the way to the back of the store. What are people buying? Everything. I mean, I, I it's, it's like a game show where you're just pushing your cart through and throwing stuff in your cart or something. I don't know. It, the, hundreds of dollars of Easter. Well, we had a lot of Easter left because we closed before Easter. So there was a lot of Easter decor left. And then it was at 80% off when we reopened. So heaping carts of Easter decor. Um, There are people buying fabric supplies and things like that, but not a lot. And almost no one's, none of the customers almost are wearing masks. For the first hour of the day, I would say maybe 25% of customers coming in are wearing a mask. They tend to be more elderly at that point of the day. And then as the day goes on, it turns to more like teenagers, younger women, and families, and I. it might be like 5 to 10% mask wearing. But they're buying, I mean, they're buying, I think they're redecorating their entire houses. I think during quarantine, they just decided, I need an entire, you know, new home design. Wow. Do you get the sense that people just have been cooped up and they're eager to just be out there and buy something? Or do you think that this is more strategic than that? More kind of, you know, these things all have a specific use. No, I I'm, I would say it mainly feels like people are just making up for lost time. Like I haven't been able to go shopping and now and to buy, you know, 
fun things again, not just groceries. I've gotten sick of going to Walmart or the grocery store. I've heard that a lot from people. They want to walk around with their coffees and drink them and talk to their friends while they're shopping and just act like everything is normal again. How is the COVID-19 spread in your town? Not great. Um, Literally the day that the city council voted to reopen our city, they were processing, they were in the middle of processing um, all the test results. They did a test of an entire pork processing plant and they had already had, I think, like 400 positives at that point. Um, it ended up being around like a little over 500 total for the plant. Um, and those numbers were still coming out. This last weekend, we actually had a free just drive in. You didn't even have to make an appointment testing at the hospital. And I, I went along with a bunch of our coworkers because one of our coworkers actually is in the hospital at this moment. He, um, is, uh, he's young. He's only in his twenties, but he's diabetic and, um, he got COVID um, and was sick from last Sunday. Um, and, so. and he was working at the store? Yes, he had come back and we all worked with him. I mean, we were both wearing masks, but I mean, I was around him for that whole time. And I know some people like someone got a ride home with him that day. Some people ate lunch with him that day in the break room, which obviously you're not wearing masks then. I've been eating in my car personally, um, but other people have still been using the break room. And yeah, he's so he's in the hospital. <laughs> I mean, there are definitely even within the people I work with, absolute deniers, you know, it's just a flu. It's just, it's no big deal. It's gonna, you know, everybody's gonna eventually catch it. You might as well get it over with all of those different tropes that you hear. But even the ones that are concerned, the ones that, you know, live with elderly family members like I do, or, you know, have young children or anything that they have concerns. But I think they just... If everyone else around them is acting like it's not a big deal, I, they feel pressured in a way to act like they're fine, too. Mm. And it is easy when you're just going about like doing something that you did before all of this. How do you feel going to work every day? I mean, do you feel like you can protect yourself? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm doing doing everything I possibly can. I just didn't I didn't want the other employees looking to me as. I didn't want them to take from my behavior that like they were safe. I didn't want them to think that they were. And I've talked to a lot of them about this and I mean, they feel similar to me, but they all need jobs. Like they can't just quit or anything. I mean, and you need a job too, I would assume because you're putting, I mean, you're, this is effectively a risky place to work and you, and you live with someone who's older. Is that right? Yes, I live with my grandma. She's in her 70s and she has MS. So she's got a lot of underlying conditions and health problems. And so it's it's definitely very scary. Um, I mean, I personally am just trying to kind of save as much money as I can. I did get a month worth of unemployment, which was actually more money than I make not by, I mean, by a couple hundred dollars a week or so. Um, so I've just been trying to save and prepay as much bills as I can in case it comes back in the fall worse. I think people who are consumers are a little bit torn, right? Like on one level, you want to help the people who are, who make their livelihood from, you know, retail, whether it's online or in person. And then on the other hand, we don't want people in retail risking their lives. So what's your advice? Oh, I definitely think we should still stay home. At least, 
use guidelines. And as far as, you know, in different areas, it's going to be different. But we reopened when we were experiencing, you know, exponential growth. We were on that document. Uh, we were at the top of the list of the White House's places to watch. It, the day we were reopening, it was 650% increases. So it just seems like wow, it needs to be applied differently in different places. Well, Cassie, we hope that you stay safe and that your grandma stays safe and that the road ahead, the winding ends um, in a good place for you. Thank you for being brave and taking care of the people you need to and good luck with everything. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of Six Feet Apart. Our show is produced by Elisa Gutierrez and Lyra Smith. Lyra Smith is our story editor. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. Special thanks to Allison Falzetta, Stephen Hoffman, and Sydney Rapp. Thanks for listening and stay safe. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.